Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, gracious Father, we come before you this morning uh, beseeching you for your holy church. Father, not just our church, this church, as we gather this morning here, but throughout the world. We pray that you would be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. We pray that where it is corrupt, that you would purify it. Where it is an error, that you would direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, that you would reform it. Where it is right, that you would establish it. Where it is in want, that you would provide for it. Where it is divided, we pray that you would reunite your church. We pray that for the sake of him who died and rose again and never lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord. Lord, we pray for your mission. O God, who has made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on the face of the whole earth. O God, you who did send your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. We pray that you would grant that all men everywhere may seek after you and find you. We ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and bring the nations into your fold. Pray that you would hasten the coming of your kingdom through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. O merciful Father in heaven, you have ordained the power of those who govern for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do well. And so we humbly pray that you would grant wisdom to your servants, those locally and at the state and federal level. Lord, we pray that you would grant that they would govern in true righteousness and justice. And Lord, that you would deal with those where it is not the case, where your justice and your righteousness are not done. And we pray for those in need. We know that you are the God of mercies. We ask that you would make us true servants of our city, imitators of you as we show mercy to the needy in our midst. We pray that you would comfort with the grace of your Holy Spirit those who suffer sorrow, sickness, or adversity today. We pray that you would have mercy upon those to whom death draws near this morning. We pray that you would bring consolation to those who right now are in sorrow and mourning. Lord, we ask that you would remember those who suffer persecution for the faith. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and faith needed to be your vessels in all of these works. Lord, we come bringing these prayers to you because you are our Father. You have commanded us to bring them. 
you long to receive them. And Lord, we know that you can do more than we ask or imagine. And we pray that you would do all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. You can turn and follow along or just listen. This is First uh, John chapter 3. And I'll read some of the context. It's verses, or chapter 2, 28 to 29, and then chapter 3, 4 through 10. First John chapter 2, 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever, practices, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to, to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us and these brief moments that we have to hear from you gathered together as your people, your church worshiping you today. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us hearts to respond. Lord, we pray that you would both kill us with this word and that you would raise us up by this word. Lord, we pray that you would comfort that you would console, that you would convict, that you would encourage, and that you would strengthen us by what we hear today from you. Lord, we ask that you would be faithful to your promise not to allow your word to return void. We pray that you would do with it in our hearts all that you intend. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Who do you look like? 
Really, who do, who do you look like? Many of you have heard from other people, right? Perhaps growing up, you've heard people say, Oh, you look just like fill in the blank. Ooh, you look just like your daddy. Or you look just like your mama. Or you look like perhaps even a grandmother, a grandfather. Or, and this, this completely befuddles me. I, don't, I cannot get my head around this. Really, I can't. When someone has a baby, and we, you know, you walk by the baby, and, and I hear people say this. They say, oh, that baby looks just like you. <laughs> what? Ooh, that baby has your eyes. Oh, that baby has your nose. That baby has your forehead. I don't, I, I can't, I don't get it, but people see that. But the similarities between us and our relatives, they go further than physical features. This is what's interesting, is that you can also hear similarity. Have you ever been, you know, with family, and you hear someone laugh, and you go, oh my goodness, that laugh is just like mom's laugh, or Uncle, Uncle Fred's laugh, or the sounds, even this, the sounds that people make in response to situations. You can see similarity there when someone goes, hmm, oh, okay, yes, right, something. Okay, but it goes beyond that. You also see it in hand, well, hand gestures. Right? If you saw my dad, you would probably say, ooh, you move your hands like your dad, because I do. And th this sounds weird, right? But I remember one time, somebody pointed this out. I went to scratch my head, and somebody goes, that is exactly the way your dad scratches his head. Right with this finger right here, right there, this one. <laughs> Happens. Gestures, posture. Oh, have you noticed the way that people's gates, there could be a real family resemblance, right? That's, that's the family gate. Look at them, they're walking, just like everybody else in the family does. Goes even deeper than that. To greater or lesser degrees, you notice the similarities in emotional responses, right? the emotional responses that he or she does or doesn't have, right? that she may be more stoic or that he may be more expressive. You can see that in families. Well, the same is true when we start talking about the children of God. In many ways, to greater and lesser degrees, and, I, and you can't escape this, right? To greater and lesser degrees, at different points in your life, you look like your Lord. 
And like him, you image your father. Even though the world calls that into question or flat denies that resemblance, John shows us that any other way, any other state of affairs, any other way of living completely contradicts the family to which we belong. Or we could say it this way, to not bear the family resemblance is unthinkable. Completely unthinkable. Makes no sense. And the world, again, seeks, we've been saying this, seeks to deceive us with the suggestion of any other alternative. And John's concern gets right at the heart of this, right? The central, the central verse in this passage, little children, let no one deceive you. That's his concern. And John's response is to say, abide in Christ. How? Why? He gives us two clear hows and whys, and they're the same. He points to the person and work of Christ in two slightly different, in more intense ways. We abide in Christ because he's redeemed us. We abide in Christ because he's renewed us. That's how and why, or the how and why that John gives. So we'll look at the redemption, his redeeming us first in chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. And then we'll look at his renewal of us, the renewal that we experience in Christ in 9 through 10. So in verses 4 through 8, he redeems us, Christ does, by dealing with our sin. All right. So verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John makes an important distinction here in verse 4 and more generally in, in all the whole section, verses 4 to 10. In verse 4, John says, practicing sin equals practicing lawlessness. John makes that distinction, sin, lawlessness. He brings those together to get to the point, right, or to point to the heart of sin, or as another writer put it, what he's showing us is that lawlessness is not merely the result of sin. Lawlessness is the essence of sin. And we can think of lawlessness this way. Okay? Lawlessness is this hostility to God. Lawlessness is rebellion against God. Lawlessness is disregard for the ways of God. That is the sinfulness of sin. That's what it is. But John makes an important point here. In the broader context, John makes it clear that this, that this engaging in this a life of lawlessness is not something that the children of God, those born of God, do. It is something that the children of the devil do. 
John has sort of given us here in, in, in this description of sin or this definition of sin. He's, he's helped us see the orientation that he's talking about. This is the orientation of the world. It's an orientation of the rejection of Jesus and the Father. And John lays this, the severity of this out, this orientation out, to show us that this is precisely what Christ came to deal with. This is where he goes in verse 5. Verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now he brings together two fabulously wonderful truths there. Our sinfulness and Christ's sinlessness. We have to have both of these for this whole thing to get off the ground. Christ appeared. Now you know this. He said, John is saying, you know this. Contrary to what everybody else is telling you, you know that Christ appeared to remove this stuff. Sin. Or sins. That was the point of his appearing. The discussion is, all right, well, can you go on practicing sin? That seems to be the question out here, this alternative. Can you not have the family resemblance? Well, it's kind of a, a, you know, odd when you start to think of the possibility of that, when you start to think, wait a minute, the whole point of Christ appearing was to remove it, was to take it away. Christ comes as the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. John, John the Baptist says it this way in John 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter, he says the same thing, but touches that note of the sinlessness of this Lamb and then a little bit of an angle on what that Lamb accomplished. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Ransomed from those old feudal ways. So sin removed, ransomed, taken out, and then Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. He calls us to be reconciled to God. And then he follows it up with this grounds for that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For our sake he made him, that is, God the Father made him the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, God the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. John is pointing to, along with all these old, other, other New Testament writers, that in the death of Christ, the death of this Lamb, we have hostility removed. We have rebellion broken. And we're brought back to God. And then, verse 6 points to the logical conclusion of all of this. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If this is who Christ was without sin, no sin, and if this is what Christ did, removed sin, do you see why John makes such a sweeping, absolute statement? He's saying we can draw from this reality, Christ's work and his person, that it is absolutely impossible for someone united to Christ to live a life of hostility, rebellion against God. It's not possible to go on living that way. You think of this sort of uninterrupted flow. It doesn't work like that if somebody, if you are united to Christ. Paul puts it in, in really descriptive terms in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Got that? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You can't go on living that way. It makes no sense. It doesn't compute. One of these things is not like the other. It doesn't work like that. And I'll, and I'll kind of flip this around on the positive, verse 6. If you abide in him, if you know him, if you've seen him, you won't, you can't be oriented like the world to sin. Just can't. That's his argument. John's argument. So, Christ has redeemed us by dealing with sin, and then... He's redeemed us by dealing with the devil. Verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Here, John continues to keep this radical distinction between Christ and sin right out in front of us. Only he drives it a little bit deeper. He makes it more urgent. Don't be deceived. He's saying, okay, if, let's get down to brass tacks. Here is what's really at stake. Here's what it really comes down to. Right? There are only two ways. The way of Christ, practice righteousness, okay? And the way of the devil, practicing sin. I mean, this is where it gets... It gets, it gets kind of a, kind of, it starts, starts to sound grating to the ears a little bit, right? I mean, the, the, so don't be shocked about this. The, well, something, I think, I can't remember what I, I said exactly to Eric, but um, if I didn't say this, I wish I'd have said this, that the title of the sermon is, is Don't Act Like the Devil. That's kind of where John is going with this. 
It's, 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 it's kind of disturbing and a little jarring when someone says, you, if someone were to come up, you're acting like the devil. <laughs> that's, that's what you're acting like. You're acting like a child of the devil. I mean, that sounds, that sounds grating to the, to the world. You're of the devil. It sounds ready-made to be mocked. But this is what John saying. Those are the only two ways. In 7 and 8, he extends our view to the origin of sin. Christ and the devil in opposition here. Christ the righteous, the devil, the lawless one, sinning from the beginning. Of course, he's referring all the way back to the fall. But John presents the severity of this to show Christ dealt with him too. In the very next part of that verse, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So you've got Christ appearing. The whole point of his appearing was the removal of sin. And here, the whole point of his appearing was the destruction of the works of the devil. How does he destroy the works? John Stott, I think, playing off of sort of the, the root of that word, to loose, he he says that it's like this idea, it's as though the chains have fallen loose. I mean, of all Satan's works, the ways he seeks to influence, the way he seeks to do damage, our relationship to him, that has fallen loose. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ is so dealt with the works of the devil, the devil himself, that his power has been severed. Or here, a power of sin severed. All humanity is enslaved to death and Satan. That's the fall. That's what it means to be in Adam. To be part of that people. And he's saying that Christ's work has dealt some kind of a blow for those who are in Christ to that. Those who are in Christ, they've experienced an end to that enslavement. Again, Paul, he puts it this way in Colossians. And one of my favorite ways of seeing this description, because it makes, makes clear this distinction between in Adam and in Christ. Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Adam. He has transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We abide in Christ because he has redeemed us. He's dealt with our sin. He has dealt with the devil. The last thing is we abide in Christ because he's renewed us. This is in 9 through 10. I'll read both of those. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice the repetition in verse 9. Born of God, not making a practice of sinning. And then at the end of the verse, born of God, you cannot keep on sinning. This idea of you can't make a practice of sin carries with it this notion of a settled character. A settled character. It's sort of like Satan, right? Satan has been sitting from the beginning, right? There's been no break, you know, no, no gaps. He's saying that there can't be that settled character, can't make a practice of sinning, and you can't keep on sinning, right? You can't go on and on. And again, we keep putting this. You can't see this hostility, and rebellion without end, without interruption. And John makes it clear that this is the, de- the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. I want to be clear here. John is not saying that sin is impossible for the Christian. I don't hear any argument with you from that. Okay. Hey, did anybody sin this morning? Yeah. Not making light of it, just, just want to sort of get it out there. Okay. Nobody, everybody's hands should be up right now, it's just in case you're, everybody should be. I mean, really? I mean, do, 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 do any of you, in thought, word, and deed, Always do what God has commanded. I mean, all right. Do any of you, have any of you, in thought, word, and deed, failed to do what God commanded, and even, ooh, and we'll get even nastier here, and even done what He told you not to do? Anybody? Okay, that's sin. That's called sin. And again, I'm, you know, it's, I'm not, and again, I don't want anybody to say, I'm not making light of sin. We just said, sin is lawlessness. It's hostility to God, right? It is, it is, it is, you know, flippantly throwing off what God has called us to, disregarding the ways of God. I'm simply making the point that we all know 
we sin. We all know that. John is not saying, it is now impossible that if you are a real Christian, that you will not sin. But what he is saying is that sin is completely incongruent with who we are. To say that we sin is not to say that is the way, is not to say that is as it should be. But, this is, but that's the disruption in sin, right? That we would say, wait a minute, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. This is a problem. Right? That you raise your hand, you are not, well, I don't think any of you are, celebrating, yay, I sin. In raising your hand, you're acknowledging, yes, I, this is something that is incongruent with who we are as the people of God. And then John gets to why that is. We, it was, we read it in the end of verse 29, just a second ago, born of God. But John says it here twice, born of God. You can't go on sinning because you're born of God. But then right in the middle of that verse, one that I didn't read again, you get to the real punchline. Why is it that life can't just go on in sin like this? John says, God's seed abides in you. For God's seed abides in you. What is that seed? Well, one way to, maybe one way to put this in a, maybe a helpful way is the general way, this life-giving power of God, the life-giving power that comes through His Word, by His Spirit. That life-giving power, right? That whatever that is that God has put in you as His people, that life-giving power, right? by His Spirit, made you alive. It brought you to life. In bringing you to life, that is one of the reasons why you would say, oh, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. That's, that is the primary reason why you don't just remain dead in your trespasses, flowing along according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, because you've been made alive. And that same life-giving power that made you alive is a life-giving power that is abiding in you right now. A life-giving power abides in us. In that reality, something God has done. Not something you have done, but something God has done. Makes the difference. That changes. I want to say this. 
And maybe this really speaks, I think, to the supernatural uh, reality that we're talking about here. I can, I can spell this out, right? You could follow the logic that, that John has made here. Right? One plus one equals two. Okay, Jesus appeared to remove sin. Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil. Okay, he has made us alive. Therefore, we don't go on sinning. We practice righteousness. Boom, I guess we're done. Is it, is that, is it that simple? It is not simply a matter, and I think this is what I'm hoping, if you don't get anything from today, get this, that is not simply a matter of, of standing here, offering you some data points, and you connecting the dots and doing the math. That's not what's going to cut it. That's not what's going to do this. You don't need a good, logical mind. I mean, that is helpful, right? A good, logical mind is not going to save you. Okay? One plus one equals two is not going to save you. You know what you desperately need. You need this life giving power that we've just talked about. You need the Spirit of God to strengthen and shore up and cultivate something that only He can strengthen and shore up and cultivate. You know what that is? An instrument. And you know what that instrument is? Faith. You need, right now, the Spirit to work in your heart to strengthen and provide that grace we call faith so that you are able to apprehend these truths that John has just laid out for you. So that you are able to grasp them so that you're able to just hold fast to them, to sink your hands down into them, to feel these truths. You need that spirit to produce in you, to strengthen that faith that relies upon this work, that runs to this work, so that you're changed. You need something supernatural to happen, to continue happening, to go on and on and on happening. That's why this is called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of you. That's why this is is a, a divine work sanctification. It's not self-development. I mean, self-development is good. There's all kinds of great self-development you can do. That is not what this is. 
It's not what saves you. We need this work of the Spirit, this power, so that we can see and know and respond. And it's by this power that that which is invisible, these realities at work in us, that that which is invisible, it's by this power that it can't help but be made visible in the lives that we live. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before you and we thank you for the work of your Son. We thank you that these these things are true, that my, your Son, what you sent him to do, Father, is to remove sin. And by your son, the work of your son, what you sent him to do was to destroy the works of the devil. These things are true. Father, we praise you that you have put in us this seed, this life-giving power by your Spirit that we have this truly in us that it's true. And Lord, I pray now that you would do what only you can do. And that is, you would stir in us that faith by which our lives are changed. Or become dependent on you, needy. And we ask that you do all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.